0: You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. If you would, you turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 4. And uh, if you don't have a, uh, your own Bible with you, uh, just reach out in front of you. Nearby, you should see a, um, a Bible nearby, like under the, um, under the chairs in front of you. And uh, sorry, I couldn't think of the word for chair there from home. But, you know, anyway, just look for it, find it. Page 210 in that pew Bible, as we refer to it. And uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Ruth called Experiencing God's Goodness in Life's Bitterness. And you've probably noticed that life... In this world has its share of bitterness. And as you read the book of Ruth, we meet people who know, knew all about life's bitterness. And yet, as we read the book, not only does it affirm the reality that in many ways there is bitterness in this life, it also, this book, calls us to taste and to see that God is good. And he's good indeed all the time. You know, a few summers ago, I found myself coaching Little League Baseball. And uh, my son was on the team, and um, I must have flinched first or something like that when they're looking for a coach. Anyway, I found myself coaching this team, and uh, they were just a, just a terrific group of kids, really nice group of kids. But they were not good at baseball together, and it was a, uh, it was a long summer, let's just put it that way. It started out with, you know, a, a loss, and then another loss, and then another loss. And before you know it, you're like, man, we've been playing for a month, four or five weeks, and we still haven't won any games. We just keep... Losing, but Mr. Positivity here, and I do have a positive bent to me, and I got bring that to bear at this baseball team and encourage these kids. Hey, guys, we're gonna get this, get this turned around. Rough start, rough start. We'll get it turned around. It's okay though, and just try to get them encouraged. But then a few more weeks go by, and every week we're losing, losing losing again. And, and you start to think to yourself, I mean, come on. I mean, law of averages here says eventually here we gotta get a win or two or at least a few, you know, like, I mean, at least one would be great. But the summer dragged on and on and on. We kept losing. And I, I'm still trying to stay positive and still trying to encourage these boys. You know, it's, it's gonna happen, guys. It's, it's gonna happen. Outside, I'm affirming and being positive on the outside, but I have to be honest, on the inside, I was really starting to doubt. Thinking, no. I don't know that these, they're good boys, but I don't think they're going to win any games this year. I'm really doubting this. But I have to stay, I can't say that out loud. i got to be positive. I'm I'm the coach uh, after all. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that position where you're externally affirming something you internally doubt. I wonder if that's the way you are when it comes to God's kindness and God's goodness. I mean, you know, the Bible says it. We sing about it. We've got sayings centered around it. But I wonder if... Sometimes, though, maybe even right now, after this most recent setback or after these ongoing struggles, the latest heartbreak, this loss you're going through, wonder if, on the inside, you're doubting it. I mean, sometimes setbacks make us wonder why would God allow that setback? Struggles cause us to question why God would let life be so hard Sorrow sap our stores of spiritual optimism and leave us doubting that God even cares, let alone that he would be good. Sometimes we just can't seem to taste God's goodness because our mouth is full of bitterness. What do you do? Well, if you need to be steadied in your certainty that God is good and kind, if you need to affirm your faith or help with your hope, Ruth chapter 4 is a text you've got to read. Because I think, while it will do many things for you, one thing that I am persuaded it does for us, is it reminds us of a centrally important truth that I want to underscore for you today. And it's this. That we can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people. We can be sure of that. If you are among God's people, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you love and follow Jesus, then you can be sure That God will work out all things for your good, for your joy, and his glory. And his glory and your joy are not at odds with each other, but rather he will see it through, that you will see that ultimately he does all things well. So if you fall asleep, or you realize that you left something in the oven, or something like that, or you get pancreatitis all of a sudden, you can't stick around, That's the main thing I want you to see. But I hope none of those things will fall upon you here in this area because I want to take it through Ruth chapter 4 because it's the basis. The Bible's the basis for even believing this stuff. Otherwise, I'm just up here being optimistic and you're not my baseball team. So let's go to Ruth chapter 4 and I'm going to give you here sort of an outline so you can follow along the story. I'm just going to pull this back so I can see it too. Love this TV. It's so much fun. And uh, so here we go. Here's our our narrative outline of Ruth chapter 4, the first half of the chapter, where we'll focus today. First of all, verses 1 and 2, we got a man on a mission. That's Boaz, the man. And then we got court is in session. We're going to go to court today. Hope you're ready for that. And then then verses 7 to 11, Boaz seals the deal. And then in verses 11 and 12, we'll see that the people pray for babies. All right? That is, I know it sounds a little wild, but uh, buckle up. Here we go, Ruth chapter 4 now the end of ruth 3 we were left on a i mean it was a real cliffhanger if you've been with us through this this story it's been quite a journey chapter 1 starts with this woman named naomi And uh, her husband, Elimelech, her sons Mahlon and Kilion. And they found themselves in a huge crisis. And the crisis was that there was a famine in the land. And in desperation, they ended up having to leave Bethlehem. And they went to Moab. And while they are in Moab, some good things happened. Her boys got married. But then some bad things happened. Her husband died. And then both of her sons. She shows up back home, the end of chapter 1 of Ruth, back home in Bethlehem, 10 years after leaving, in a really sorry state. She's bitter. And you'd be bitter, too. Because life was bitter for her. And she said, the the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And as far as she could see, there is nothing good going on in her life. But we could see that she had one good thing. And that was Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who stuck with her, committed herself to being with her mother-in-law, Naomi. In Ruth chapter 2, she shows that, I mean, she is amazing. She's out there, out in the field, working, trying to scavenge and, and get together food for herself and her mother in law. And that's when she meets Boaz. And you recall, Boaz showed her real abundant kindness and lavish provision for her. And she brought home all kinds of food. And Naomi realized that she knew who Boaz was. He was a relative, a distant relative of her late husband, Elimelech. And then in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi plays matchmaker. Remember last week, Naomi devises a plan for Ruth to signal back reciprocal love to Boaz. Really, it amounted to a proposal, a marriage proposal. And she referred to Boaz as a redeemer. And remember, we said this is kind of born out of a tradition in Old Testament times. Where a male relative takes and marries a destitute, childless widow in order to provide for her and to protect her and to give her security, which were all needed in antiquity. It wasn't like today in 2023. We got different programs and helps and that sort of thing. In those days, in those times, this is what was. This was a hope for Naomi. And for Ruth to have a redeemer like this. And Naomi saw that Boaz was one such candidate. And so, remember, it was a strange, it was a wild scene where there's, where Ruth comes and signals that she'd like to be Boaz's wife. And Boaz, he thinks she's amazing and it's wonderful. But then you find that, see, the problem with Boaz is he's a righteous man. Don't you hate it when people's righteousness and godliness gets in the way of practicality? And the problem with Boaz is he was a righteous man and he knew there was another relative that was closer. And that if that relative in the ancient machinations of things really actually had first rights, prior rights to him. then so Boaz, being a righteous man, was going to see this through. But he's going to see it through that he would, it was done properly. Did he want to marry Ruth? Absolutely! She was amazing. Did she want to marry him? You bet. But he's going to do it the right way. Don't you just hate it when people got to do it the right way? Well, this was Boaz. But you know what? That's what people do when they believe in the living God. They trust him. And they'll go his way. And that's what Boaz does. In the end of verse 18, we're left waiting. Don't know how you are with waiting, but Naomi and Ruth were waiting, probably anxiously, for this to happen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate And sat down there. Here's our man on a mission. You say, what's he doing at the gate? Watch and see. And Behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, so the other relative he'd spoken about, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. Now at this point, court is in session. I know it doesn't look like court is in session. Like we don't hear the Perry Mason music or see Ben Matlock striding in, but it is court is in session in the ancient workings of things. This is where you did serious business at the gate of the city. For one, I mean, practically speaking, there's a good chance you're going to find the people you need to find at the gate. People are going through the gate to go out to the fields and coming back in at the end of the day. But it was also the place known for when you do serious official business. He gathers together these Ten elders, and they would serve as legal official witnesses to whatever business was going down. You see, he's a man on a mission, and now court is in session. Well, what's going to happen next? I hope this marriage thing works out, because we really want them to get together. They're going to make such a cute couple. Come on, let's do it. Let's do this, Boaz. Okay, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land land that belonged to our relative Elimelech? What's this land talking about? Where where, where have we read about this? There's there's no mention of this land before now. If we could talk to the narrator and say, why didn't you tell us about this land before? I think the narrator would say, well, you didn't need to know about it it before now. It's just just part of the story. So, So just be quiet and keep reading. Okay. All right. So there's land. All right. So verse four, I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not... Now, hang on a second. We want Boaz to be the redeemer. Now he's offering it to this guy. Dude, he's not even named. He's just called friend. Just, just, no, Boaz, stop. Stop this. No, well, let's see. But if you will not, tell me, yes, yes, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, I will tell you this. It's pretty tricky to really nail down, like, the whole backstory and all the legal realities that are folding up before us. And and one of the things that the, the geek in me finds mildly frustrating is that the author doesn't really elaborate and explain why he's going about this in this way. I suppose the Lord would have for us to be content with what we got here in the text and just listen to what the text says. But I can't help but speculate about what's going on here, this land. And if Naomi had land, why haven't we heard about it already? In fact, why isn't she making money off it? Well, I did some digging and here, here's, here's my guess. Here's my guess of the situation. Now, you, you gotta take a deep breath. We're gonna go through some ancient stuff here. Hang on with me. If you end up lost in the wilderness, I'll come back and collect you in a minute. Okay, you ready? All right, so lay hold of the person next to you. Don't get lost. We're going to go through the ancient woods, but we're going to come out on the other side, and I think you're going to get an understanding of what's going on here. Now, land in ancient Israel is really important because God gave his people land. And he assigned to his people the different tribes amongst his people certain portions of land. And within those tribes, land is divided up amongst family groups. Because land is given to, to God's people by God himself, it's really important not only that they have that land, but they also, the family groups, have the land that's assigned to them. So much so that the law had a provision in it that, like, if you had land belonging to your family and you fell on hard times and had to sell that land to somebody else so you could survive... There was a law in the Old Testament that said, when the year of Jubilee comes around every few years, then there's a reset button is hit and everybody gets all their old land back because God had given it to them. Okay, you with me? All right, now, what happened to Naomi and Elimelech? Well, you remember, there was a famine and things got really desperate. Now, here's, here's my best guess at what went down. Elimelech's got this piece of land. And it's desperate times. They're fighting for survival because they run out of food. So what does he do? My guess is, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is he probably sold that land and took the money and tried to eke out a living as long as they could, hoping that the rains would come and the famine would end. But of course, as you know, it, it didn't. When we begin the book, the, the famine was so severe that Elimelech and Naomi and the family had to leave And go to Moab. They made the painful decision to leave and go to Moab. Now, they're gone 10 years. And in that course of time, whoever that land had sold to, the land had probably gone to somebody else. Now, Naomi comes back. And the land is in somebody else's hands. And so, it's not hers. And in antiquity, too, as this widowed woman, she actually, I know it's hard for us to understand in 2023 in Canada, the rights that land ultimately, truly was with her husband, not with her. She has some kind of leverage here, but it seems the extent of her leverage is just in in appealing that it end up back in the family of her husband, you see? So when Boaz says she's got some land to sell, we shouldn't be thinking of her having a deed to property and with the real estate sign up for sale and a price tag on it. Rather... He is appealing here, Boaz, on her behalf, that the land that has gone out of the family be brought back into the family through one of these redeemers. You with me? Okay, is anybody back in the forest? i got to come get you, all right? I don't know how to do that, but just come with me now In back into the text, okay? So Boaz is looking out for Naomi to try to get the land back into the family. But the problem is we want Boaz to have it because we want him to be redeemer, because we want him and Ruth to get married because they're so cute together. They're awesome. So, Boaz here is working toward that, but notice what happens. He says, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. Because you have rights to it. Now, you notice the end of verse 4. And he said, this is the no-name guy, who's a closer relative to Elimelech, and he said, I will redeem it. And all God's people said, no! No, I don't like how this is unfolding. Boaz, what's the matter with you? Stop being so righteous. Stop fearing God so much. Look out for yourself, man. Get this. No, that's not how Boaz rolls. That's not how godly people rule. But you should know this. Boaz is a sharp cookie, which is funny. I don't know. I say that often, sharp cookie. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. But what, is it, what would you do to yourself if you bit down on a sharp cookie? I don't know. Anyway, he's bright. He ain't dumb. He knows what he's doing here. So let's just trust him. Sometimes that's what the Lord calls us to do, isn't it? in the midst of the questions, the wondering, the doubting, says, just trust me. Wait. Trust me. Okay, Boaz, but I don't know, I don't like how this is going. All right, verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, in his inheritance. Now here you begin to see what Boaz is doing. He's not being devious, but he is pretty smart. What he's done is he's called together a legal court session and by now it's at the gate. So you know what's happening. All kinds of people are gathering. Oh, what's going on here? What's happening here? All kinds of people have gathered around now as a big public session. And this man has just openly declared that there's a piece of property and he is going to the redeemer. Now to this point, to this point, It's nothing but a winning investment for this unnamed man. I mean, think about it. He was just going out to work one day, and all of a sudden, he's offered to get a piece of land. It would cost him up front to buy it, but he'd have the benefit of eventually owning that land himself. After all, he'd just have to take care of Naomi, this elderly lady, for a few years. But eventually, before too long, surely she'll kick off, and then that land will be mine, and because I'm the redeemer, and I will get the benefit, this is a great savvy. Uh, I'm just the luckiest man alive. I should go buy lottery tickets. I'm so lucky. This is amazing. This is how he's thinking. But then he hears when he's he says, "I'll redeem the land." Then Boaz is like, "Oh, that's great. Listen, I can't wait for your wedding. You and Ruth are you're gonna make such a cute couple." I you. Wait, Wedding. What are, you, whoa, what are you? What are you talking about? Oh, did did I forget? Silly me. forgot. See, when you get the land as part of the Redeemer, you also get the woman, Ruth, and she's amazing. I mean, oh, she's, she's so, I mean, everybody knows how wonderful a woman is. You're so blessed. This is going to be, oh, praise, praise God. Why don't we just join hands and praise God together for his provision in your life. Now at this point, this unnamed man, his wheels, the wheels are turning. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is not a savvy investment anymore. Because as soon as I take this land, I'm going to have to pay for the land, support Naomi and Ruth, marry Ruth, have children with her, and then this land that I've acquired, they will become the heirs of this land. I won't have the land, and I'll have to care for them until they're old enough. This is He's doing quick math in his head, and he's realizing it turns out for him a financial deficit. It's too costly. And so, the end of verse 5 When Boaz is done speaking, one commentator says this is the longest pause in the whole book. What's he going to do? And remember, everybody's watching. Everybody's watching. You see, to take the land and then reject Ruth would be a shameful thing. Think about it. Try to put on your ancient mind and think about, yes, I'll take the land. I don't have a legal, I'm not legally required to marry her. But it would be a shameful thing if I took her land from her and then rejected the daughter-in-law of Naomi, the daughter-in-law of Elimelech. If I refused to carry through and to perpetuate his name, it would be a deeply shameful thing. But that's the position he found himself in. You see what I mean when I say that Boaz is the man? Like, this is, this is great. He is totally bent on being the redeemer of this woman and marrying Ruth. Well, at this point, verse 6, the story turns. Then the Redeemer, this is the nearer relative, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And all God's people say, Yes! Yes! It's it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's Boaz's now. But I love this next part. He's not messing around. There's no dilly-dally. He's on it. When you have hope, hope inspires you to action. And this is what he does. He doesn't waste any time. We've got Boaz seals the deal. Now, this is really cute, really interesting for us in 2023. Look how ancient real estate acquisitions went down. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel. It, just pause here again. Sorry, it's, I keep pausing. But It's so quaint what they're about to do here, that even the ancient readers had to have it explained to them. Now, this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now, in my lifetime, I have been involved in, in more than one real estate transaction. And I can just tell you from my experience, there's a lot of trees harmed in real estate transactions. There's stacks, stacks of paper. And you sit down and you go through it, sign here, sign here, and initial here, and initial here, and sign here, initial here, sign here, initial here, and just through pages, a page, sticky notes and mounds of paper. It's, it's unbelievable. It was a whole lot simpler in ancient Bethlehem. You just took your shoe off and gave it to the person. Done deal. I say we bring that back. Wouldn't that be a whole lot simpler than signing stuff and everything like that? Just take your shoe off and give it to them in front of a bunch of witnesses. Done. I saw it. Good. Let's eat. But anyway, we are where we are. There are advantages in living in antiquity. Verse 8. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. I, I laugh because I just picture this guy. Like he, he goes from thinking, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world here. I've just acquired some land. It's just landed in my lap. To now, he's taken his shoe off and it's like the land's gone and I've just, I've just made this deal here. He's thinking, "How? What just happened? What just happened? Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now just don't trip over that there that he bought her. Not like he had ownership of her. You no know, remember in the ancient workings of things, he is coming in to fulfill a noble role of being her protector. Of being more than just her man in the ancient working of things, but being her security. So he hasn't purchased her as a possession, but he is here legally asserting himself as the one with the honor of taking this woman to be his wife. That's how he saw it. He says that he bought her to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You see what Boaz has in mind to do? Yes, to marry Ruth, but also notice he's going to honor Ruth's late husband and honor Elimelech and perpetuate the family name. He has in mind, surely, surely he has in mind, this is amazing, I get to marry this woman but also, too, he's very intent on honoring the Lord in showing a kindness to distant relatives. He closes verse 10, you are witnesses this day. Now, verse 11 and 12, we have the people pray for babies. Look at this. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. They pray here for babies. I don't know if you've ever been to court. I doubt, though, before you left, that the the people stood and prayed a prayer blessing over you. Even more doubt that they prayed that you would have babies. But that's because you never went to court in ancient Bethlehem. That's how they would close it off. They're praying here for children. The mention of Rachel and Leah, they're the mothers of the nation. So they're praying that they would be indeed fruitful. And they're praying for prominence. Perez was the head of Boaz's clan, praying here that for a prominence and the, the, the continuation of the line. Now, the next thing that's going to happen next week is the wedding. So when you come to church next week, wear your best because we're going to a wedding together. We're going to be there for Boaz and Ruth to get married. But I want to hold you in suspense on that because you have time to prepare and everything. And don't forget to bring a gift for them and all that kind of stuff too. Because I am just kidding. I hope you do know that. But I want to stop here and make sure that we underscore and for a moment at least unpack the main point that I want to make. And it's this. That we can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people. We can be sure of that. I'm not saying there won't be problems in your life. I mean, just look at the, the the part of the book we read so far. Things are God is here in these days turning what was bitterness into an experience of his goodness. But it was bitter. There's been much heartbreak. Just ask Naomi. The loss of three precious men to her. Just ask Ruth and the agonizing decision she made with full conviction. But how agonizing it must have been to leave her life behind and to go with her mother-in-law. And then to struggle, to survive, to labor. I mean, there, there is... Nobody in this story we've read so far has any rose-colored glasses on their face. They they see that indeed, just like Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. They saw that and they knew that. The path that we are on is one that is marked with pits and ditches and boulders and trapdoors and all kinds of difficulty. Some of them are in the form of family pain. There's no pain like family pain. And some of you are in that right now, financial trouble. You know, when you have financial trouble in your life, it has you for breakfast, lunch, and supper, doesn't it? Tucks you into bed at night, you wake up in the morning, and it's right back. For some, it's, it's work challenges or a, a health crisis. Or just, just a setback after another setback after another setback, and you find yourself in a road that's marked with difficulty and hardship. But you read the book of Ruth and you find here, one, you're not the only one that's experiencing life like that. Naomi and Ruth would come alongside you and say, I feel your pain and I've cried those same tears. But we also have seen throughout this book that there is a faith and a God who's always working. And we as readers of Ruth... Have, we can see, from our perspective, God working from the, from the famine all the way through here to the end of this court session. And he's not done yet. There's more glories to come. We can see God working, and we have this perspective that, yes, life is difficult, and there is bitterness in this life, but there's also the sweetness of God along the way. And, and most importantly... As we're getting here, just just a glimpse, just a glimpse, a little foreshadowing here. We see here how God in this episode is working together all things, even painful things, towards something good and glorious. That's also true in a larger scale for you in your life. God is at work all the time, and his purpose for you ultimately is that you would bring glory to him. And in bringing glory to him, you would find much joy. And his strategy in doing that is to take all of the heartbreaks and the tears and the setbacks and the struggles of your life and in a way that only God can to... Take those and turn them around ultimately for your joy. So that in the end, the struggles you've had will only serve in heaven in eternity to increase your joy in God and his greatness and his mercy and his kindness and his grace to you in Jesus Christ. you see? Only God can take that steaming pile of trouble and turn it into something good. And you and I, we stand back and we're like, how's he ever going to take this and make this good? Well, that's talk to Naomi end of chapter one. Great. I just buried my husband and my two sons. I have nothing. And you want to tell me about a God who's good. Why don't you... I won't even finish that sentence. Right? But what Ruth shows us, the book of Ruth shows us he is good, and he's working. He's working right now. You're like, I don't see it. I know you don't see it. Because the bitterness is there, right? And the heartbreak is there, which we don't see in those seasons. It's, it's like the windshield is fogged right over. I, I, I know. But that's why we need the Word of God to, to help clear the windshield a bit and give us a little telescope and look into the future. In the end, when Jesus returns and you're in heaven, you'll see he took all that stuff and he turns it around for good. This book is given to us in part to help us to see that in real lives, in history, the lives of Naomi and Ruth. One pastor put it this way. He says, the story of Ruth is written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy we can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people. Now, I want to build on that and unpack that just a little further. I'm making a statement here. We can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people. I want you to see this, that this reality is promised in Scripture. It's promised. It's so important you see this, that I'm not up here, I'm not treating you, I'm not your baseball coach. Say, it's okay, guys. It's gonna work out. It's gonna be good, surely. I mean, it has to, right? It's gotta turn around eventually. No, I'm not like that. No, we got promises. God has God has spoken. Romans 8:28. We know, so we know this. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, well, who's you say, who's the people who are called according to his purpose? Well, those are the people who love and follow Jesus. Do you love and follow Jesus? Are you trusting in him today? Well, that's you. You love God. You know him. When you have Jesus, when you're trusting in Jesus, you're in this relationship with him. God says, I got a promise for you. You ready? Write this down. You're going to need it. I'm working to cause all things, all things, your heartbreak, your disappointments, your frustrations, your sorrows, all things. I cause all things to work together for your good. Ultimately, this is what God is doing. may not feel like it today, it may not look like it today. It may seem, from your perspective and mine, impossible. But is there anything too hard for God? The Bible says all things are possible for him. Notice, it's promised in Scripture. I emphasize that because we're basing, we're basing this reality on the Word of God. Not just on what we want to think will happen, and not just on a hunch, but on his word. It's back a number of years ago, a bit of a sore spot in a marriage, where um, my wife did something that, I still do shake my head about this from time to time, but she, she did it, and we've worked it through. We're in a good place now, but it was, uh, it was playoff time, and lots of you know I'm a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and uh, why do you laugh when I say I'm a Leaf fan? I just, uh, and believe me, I know all about it, and uh, I know. And there isn't any joke you can make about the Leafs that I haven't already heard. Okay, so I'm a big, big Leaf fan, and I just I can't help it. I just I can't help it. They they shatter me every spring, but I I can't stop loving them. I it's just it's in me. Until heaven, I get a new team in heaven, I think. Well, this year it was. Some of you remember it well. They were playing the uh, they playing the Boston Bruins, and. Uh, <laughs> I have a visceral reaction when I see that Bruins symbol, and, and uh, it was the playoffs, and they were underdogs, and I, my memory serves me right, it was game seven, and halfway through the third period, the Leafs scored yet another goal to go up four to one, four to one, with ten minutes left in the, in the third period, and my wife picked up her phone and texted a friend of ours and said, they're going to win it. I'm like... No, you don't do that. You don't, you don't. Leaf fans, right? You don't do that. You know, you, nothing is for sure. You wait till the finals buzzer's over and then you say, we won. You, you don't go on and say stuff like that when the game's not over yet. Like, what are you doing? Well, they're, going, they're up 4-1, it's 10 minutes. I, I know, but now the pressure's on, right? And wouldn't you know, the, the Bruins score and they make it 4-2. to two. And then a couple minutes later, they score again. It's four to three, and now now there's we were actually away together. My wife, we were away for just a a couple's, just husband wife, you know, small children at home, just time to be away. We got issues now, okay? Because this is this is you can't. And then they tied it, and then in overtime, they won. The, The Bruins won five to four. The Leafs are done, and it was her fault. Now, we've worked it through, and of course, you know I'm just joking, sort of, but (laughs) she had, of course, law of averages, if you watch a lot of sports, of course, she had good reason to say, to predict, it's going to go good, they're going to (laughs) win. I mean, isn't it pretty common that if you're up by three goals, with 10 minutes to go in the third period, you're probably going to win, most often, but then again, if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, you know better. So on what basis did she make this prediction that it was going to end good? Well, a hunch, a feeling. Seen it happen lots before. But she didn't know. Are we sure, Ross, that we're not just doing the same thing here? Saying it's all going to work out good in the end just to keep us smiling, just to encourage us? If only I was so nice to just show up to want to encourage you with fluff, right? Right? What cruelty when God's word tells us how we can know. Your hope, my hope for the future is not based on a hunch or a law of averages or a surely it's going to work out fine. If that's your attitude, what actually makes you think it's going to work out fine? Is it, I mean, does, history show, does this history show you that it's all going to work out fine? I don't know. I read history and find out most often it doesn't work out fine. In fact, I would argue since the Garden of Eden, it's not been working out fine at all. So, so on what basis do you say it's, it's going to work out fine? I'm not stuck here telling you, surely it's going to work out. It's got to turn around. No, no. What I'm telling you is this. We can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people because he promises it in Scripture. God says it. That's the rock on which I stand. I don't want to live my life ba- uh, trusting in my trick knee or my spidey sense. And praise God, I don't have to. He's spoken. And told me, I got this. The challenge is that we got to trust him. And bank on him. Well, wonder of wonders. I mean, this would be enough, right? I mean, it's kind enough, and it should be enough, that God would just tell us. But he went a step further. He proved it to us. See, here's our point we can be sure that God will work out all things for the good of his people. It's promised in Scripture. Also, it's proven in Christ. It's proven in Christ. For this, we want to look at Romans 8 and 32. Just a a few verses after the verse we're looking at, he says this. He, talking about God, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him give us all things? You see what he's saying? God has given his son to rescue us. Jesus came in and died on the cross to pay for our sins. So God's done that already in history. He's done it. It's finished. How hard that would be. So now, how will he also, having done this hard thing, how will he not do the easier thing, namely to give us all that he promises to give us in Jesus? Do you see? Let me put it to you this way. Just just think for a minute. ask you a question here. Think on it for a second. What do you think is the greatest obstacle to our salvation? What do you think is the greatest obstacle, the greatest barrier to our salvation? Now, I wrote down a few different possibilities. I thought about, well, there's our sin. I mean, our sin is a big problem. It's why we need salvation. Our sin separates us from God. That's an issue. Or how about our hard-heartedness? We got that sometimes, maybe more often than we care to admit, where we don't even feel the weight of our sin. In fact, sometimes we're way too okay with our sin. That's a problem. Then we got our blindness, our blindness to even see our problem, our blindness to Jesus and what he's done, the blindness that we have to the good news. There's, there's our own stubbornness. There's the power of our flesh that we're, our fallen inclination is actually want things that displease God, and then on top of all that, we got the work of the devil. The devil works to deceive us. and There's a lot of barriers, aren't there? A lot of obstacles to salvation. So let me ask you, what do you think is the greatest obstacle to our salvation? I'd submit to you that none of those things, although they're all obstacles, none of those things are the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle to our salvation is this. It's God's love for his son the biggest obstacle to your salvation and mine is god's love for his son you say what do you mean the father loves the son for all eternity father son and spirit there has been has been and always will be joyous rapturous community when jesus was baptized The Father spoke, a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, in the eyes of the Father, is most precious above all things. And the only way for you and me to be saved is if this Jesus, precious Jesus, would be given of the Father to die for wretched, rebellious sinners like you and me that is the greatest barrier to our salvation, the Father's love for the Son. And look what the Bible tells us. God in his grace did not let that be a barrier. He did not spare even his own Son, his precious Son, whom he loves, loves with a love we can never begin to fathom. He did not spare him but handed him over that he would die on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for the sins, not that he committed, but that you and I have committed, so that we can be forgiven and have this home in heaven, this glorious future. So see what Paul's saying? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So then how will he also also not with him give us all things? So see... He's promised that he'll work out all things for the good of his people. He promised that in Scripture, but he's proven it in Jesus. He's already done the hardest thing. That is, that he gave his son. So now his promise is for you to have a home in heaven and eternal joy and to take all the tragedies and difficulties and heartbreak in your life and to somehow make it for your good and his glory. He will do it. He's promised it, and he's proven it. And he's already done the harder thing in giving you Jesus for your salvation. And I think that the book of Ruth is given to help us to see this. Think about the idea of this costly redemption. And in a very much, much smaller way, look at what's happening with Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. The other fellow, who's never named, calculated up the cost of redemption in this ancient context and said to himself, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's too costly. Boaz, yes, he loved Ruth. Yes, it seemed to him like nothing if he got to marry Ruth and to love her, to have her in his life. But let's not overlook the fact that it was costly for him. And all the reasons that this other guy had for not wanting to redeem, Boaz could have leaned on them too. But he didn't. Because he would not let that be a barrier to being the redeemer. And in a very small way, it's a foreshadowing, a picturing forward of the costly redemption we have in Jesus. It costs Jesus, it costs God greatly. But it's a price he was willing to pay, it's a price he did pay. So we can have confidence, loved one, that whatever you're going through, or whatever's on the horizon, or whatever you're reeling from, God is going to take that, And he's going to use it for your eternal joy. You just got to wait and see. So, what do we do with that? Well, I would say, wait and see. You're like, that's not very practical, Pastor, to wait and see. Well, maybe a little more than just waiting. Believing. Praying. Say, God, give me the faith to believe that this is true. Give me faith that I don't have on my own to lay hold of this biblical truth that you've declared, that you've demonstrated, to lay hold of this, that I can be sure that you will work out all things for the good of your people, that includes me. Give me faith to believe that, to hold on to you, to not become embittered, but to trust you, O oh God. Pray for that. Ask the Lord for it. Also, worship defiantly through it. That is, through whatever it is you're going through. To worship God. To praise him. I think it is so good for our souls to, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're dealing with, to, as an expression of our faith, to worship him. To declare in song and in speech and in prayer his goodness, that we believe on him. What a testimony. What a testimony to your children What a testimony to your friends. What a testimony even to your church family that as the tears roll down your face from heartbreak and disappointment, you still yet worship your God because you believe on him. You believe on him, that even though in this world you do have trouble, you are taking heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Worship him defiantly through it. And then finally I would say this. Be sure that you're one of his people. Be sure that you're one of his people. Because, see, if you're not, if you're not trusting in Jesus, then you can see this isn't talking about you, is it? Because it says, it's to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So if if you're not trusting in Jesus, as much as you might like to lay hold of this, he's not talking about you. But if you do trust in Jesus, then all this for you is yes and amen. You see? So my plea to you, in fact, more than that, my invitation, would be to come to Jesus. Come to him. He is is such a treasure to us for so many reasons, not the least of which is that he secures for us this eternal blessing from God, a friendship with him that culminates in joy and glory. Let's pray together.